Hello and welcome to the test screening. I'm Billy. I'm Chloe. We're two film school graduates and cinephiles who can't seem to get enough of the big screen. So now we're bringing you our weekly insights into the biggest releases, hottest topics and forgotten classics every Monday. Hello everybody and welcome to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And I'm Billy. How are we doing this week, Billy? It's good. We've had we've got quite an interesting variety of of films this week, some kind of some very weighty, interesting philosophical documentaries and dramas, and then just Gerard Butler. <laughs> Gerard Butler. We we also need to talk a little bit about the Renaissance. Brendan Fraser. Back. Yes. The resurgence of Mr. Fraser after having I mean such a terrible time really in the past few years mm. in the in the film industry. But it's really great that an actor who had a, had a really good following back in the day and is clearly very talented and that's had a very difficult time receive such love that appears to be so validate, validating and so invigorating for him. Forget how many films that he was in. I think over Christmas I was like, you know, going, you know when you go through Netflix over the holidays and you're just like, anything, put anything on. I'll watch 10 movies in a day and um, I put on Inkheart and I was a massive oh, yeah. fan. I was such a fan of the books when I was a kid. And I I loved the film as well. Like I know it didn't. I don't think it performed particularly well, but it like I was just it was my kind of thing. You know that kind of fantasy stuff. And also like he's just he was a bit of a Tom Cruise in the day. You know he was yeah. an action hero. It's really interesting to see him. You know coming back and then taking on these you know more dramatic. Uh, roles so yeah I'm, I'm really excited to delve into that one a little bit deeper yeah me, me too talk about his performance and the, and the wider film as a whole also you know the mummy has the mummy and the mummy returns i mean we don't talk about mummy tomb of the dragon emperor but um what do you mean <laughs> the mummy isn't the mummy 2 is a cinematic masterpiece billy no 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 the mummy the mummy returns is great i'm talking about the the third one tomb of the dragon oh. emperor you know that what? One, I don't uh... think I've ever even seen that. <laughs> oh yeah, you're not missing much. <laughs> even in my even in my young days, I wasn't particularly a fan of that one. But um, the first two mummies are just really great, self-aware, kind of campy, but you know, not to the point where it's too cringeworthy. You know, action romps—they're great fun. I'd love to rewatch oh, them actually now and just just revel in the chaos. <laughs> They were another one that was on over the Christmas holidays and um, we watched uh, the second one, Scorpion King, and just Dwayne The Rock Johnson's CGI magnificence in that film. It's just like, oh, this this is aged. This is aged (laughs) like milk. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you know, the motion capture, if you could even call it that in... In, in, on the Scorpion King and the Mummy Returns is just it it makes it makes Crash Bandicoot look like the Mona Lisa. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I love that analogy. I'm going to be using that all the time now. Um, so in in Oscars news, um, there was also a little bit of a story with one of the Oscar noms, wasn't there? Yeah. So I think I'm not alone in saying that everyone was kind of quite surprised and quite taken aback by the the very sudden and unexpected nomination of Andrea Riseborough in To Leslie, which um, I haven't heard a tremendous amount about, but I believe it's a drama around a woman who, I think in the, the one of the southern states in America, who wins the lottery and then squanders it all. And I think she has uh, struggles with addiction and alcoholism. And it's a kind of very 
intimate character portrait of her and her struggles around that and her road to recovery. And it wasn't, I mean, she's a terrifically talented actress. I think she's wonderful. And I haven't really seen her in anything that I didn't think she was really great in, apart from maybe Roald Dahl's Matilda. But I think that's more of a case of maybe her being directed to overact rather than necessarily her own choices. There was kind of, there was an investigation that was uh, conducted to do with that nomination because it, it was kind of strange. They were looking to try and see if her Oscar campaign, not that I really knew that there even was one for that film because I didn't, I didn't see any evidence of it online, if it was conducted properly or unfairly because the, the nomination was so unexpected. People had said, you know, were there was some sort of unfair activity going on? Was it, you know, conducted like in a way that money under the desk kind of thing? Perhaps, perhaps, or I'm not, I'm not really sure what is classed as improper with concerns to a to an Oscar campaign. But um, I mean, it was kind of disheartening to me. I mean, in in the end, because if if it had been found that the Oscar campaign was not conducted in what they deemed to be a proper uh, above board manner. The her Oscar na- her Oscar nomination would have been vetoed, so it just would have been taken out of the category, and it wouldn't have been filled with anything else. It would have, there would have just been four nominees for best actress. But I think that would have been well, one t- terribly gutting for her, mm. because you know it appears you know if the critic if the critical response is anything to go by, the, she delivers a very very fine performance in that film. But yeah, it, it would just be I think a real shame for the promotion of. A performance to to end up being the thing that sort of takes it out of the the running for the for awards consideration because I mean people must have had to vote voted for it and yeah. for it to be shortlisted and, and then be nominated and also it kind of for me I mean I do understand that you know there is a political element in having to run a campaign to gain the attention and sort of put it for put a film forward you know from them and set it apart from the masses that must be up for potential awards consideration in order to secure a nomination but really I've, for me it should come it should always come down to the quality of the performance over how much it gets promoted you know i don't i don't necessarily want a film to be nominated just because it had more exposure than you know a really quiet drama that actually had a really incredible display of acting at the center of it I'm sure it'd be one on your list to go in to go and see, <laughs> so that we can talk about it more on here. Yes, we'll um, definitely be covering it if it does release over here. Absolutely. So let's get straight into the reviews because we've still got we've still got quite a few to get through, um, and we're going to start with the Renaissance itself, the whale. Uh, yes. Brendan Fraser um, playing um, a very overweight man who's trying to reconnect with his daughter based on the stage play. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what did you think of it, Billy? So, yeah, The Whale, uh, Samuel D. Hunter, uh, adapting his own stage play of the same name about, like you say, uh, a morbidly obese man who is, receives a very uh, grim medical prognosis at the start of the film. And it sort of just takes you through a week in his life and his attempts to sort of make amends with the various people who are still currently in his life and also reconnect with his daughter. Uh, the latest film by Darren Aronofsky, uh, whose last film, Mother, was this very incendiary, incendiary nature, uh, religious allegory about our sort of, at least that's how I interpret it to be, this critique of how we treat the world. And it was very abstract and, and very divisive and, and very explosive and brutal. And this seems to be like a much more restrained 
a humanistic drama that I think is attempting to be a lot more crowd pleasing after something that was received such backlash, I think, and such divisive and strong responses from uh, from the audience. Obviously, considering this is based off a stage play, naturally the performances and the quality quality of them are going to be central to the conversations around the film's quality. And obviously there's been a lot of awards buzz around Brendan Fraser and also Hong Chow, who is up for Best Supporting Actress for this film as well. The extraordinary prosthetic work is also up for uh, Best Makeup at the Oscars, which I think it will handily win and deserves. There really isn't any sort of division or between you know the actor and the and Brendan Fraser as a person and the prosthetics. It really does feel like all integrated as part of the same person, which is very solid. I mean, I do think there is a political discussion to be had about putting a fact, an actor who isn't, doesn't have a weight issue in, you know, quote unquote, a fat suit. But, you know, putting that aside for a second and talking about the actual quality of his performance and if he deserves the awards buzz, um, I do think it's warranted. He is. I think extraordinary in this film. He's really terrific. In many ways, it's an incredibly challenging role because you know any actor who is you know playing someone who is has this prominent of a weight issue and is going to be this immobile and physically restricted has to then emote an incredible amount despite not being able to express very little with the rest of your body because you you know he sat for a large portion of the film's runtime or lying down, but he really is up to the task here. There's so much wit, optimism, exhaustion and pain. He just goes through the the full range of emotions in this film. And considering, you know, his kind of campy, you know, the mummy, Brenda, uh, George of the Jungle, uh, bedazzled, you know, comedic work he's done in the past. You know, he he has a lot of really weighty, dramatic material to pull off here. And he, he does it with ease. All those emotions are so thoroughly conveyed through these micro gestures, small turns of his head or his mouth, a a furrowing of the brow. Uh, His eyes are doing so much of the work here. And it all all feels so natural and emotionally resident. You know, thing that's so wonderful about his performance is that underneath, underneath, you know, the excess, you know, skin and stuff and the prosthetics, you still see the person. He he makes this person like Charlie a fully rounded, personality and gives it such compassion and such great empathy unfortunately i don't think the film as a whole necessarily shares that compassion and empathy but we'll get onto that in a moment um you know and watching brendan fraser on screen you can you can so palpably see how you know the prolonged pain he suffered in his life is weighing on him and suffocating him alongside you know how the weight is doing that in a more physical and medical sense elsewhere um hong chow she's able to show you know, bitterness and ferocity while also displaying wonderful care and, and sensitivity and towards Charlie and quietly powerful moments of of real sadness. You know, in a way she has almost as much as, as, as challenging a role as Brennan Fraser because she has to be empathetic and also sharp. And she again pulls that off with with total ease and her comedic moments and her sort of <laughs> very sardonic caustic humor work really well as well and add some levity to the subject matter as well. Whilst I do have issues with the way her character is written overall, I think Sadie Sink as the daughter, <laughs> her character has such a, a hateful personality. And I do think it's a performance, her, the way her character is written is, is kind of one note in that aggression. But I mean, considering how 
how easy it is to get behind her character and of Max say in Stranger Things, you know, you really do di- strongly dislike her in this. You know, her her vitriolic behaviour is so emphatic and forceful. But there's also, but there is also an underlying sense of bitter sadness in here that's motivating that outwards uh, lashing out, which I think is very convincing. I think she she does well with what she's given there. Uh, this this is also interestingly the second time recently that Samantha Morton has been given essentially an extended cameo and has practically walked away with the whole film she did this recently and she said and i thought her 10 minute scene and she said was the the, the, this being the harvey weinstein investigative journalism uh, drama i thought her sequence was the best thing in the entire film in the way or the way she conjures up the the years of you know betrayal and failed relationship and sadness that happened between her and charlie but also regret about the way she raised the daughter their daughter and also the, the delicate affection she can still conjure up for Charlie is really remarkable. And she's able to so convincingly show this in such a short period of time. I mean, she doesn't quite steal the whole film from Brendan Fraser, but it, re- it there isn't a lot in it, I think. I don't necessarily think Brendan Fraser is as leagues ahead of the best acting competition as maybe some people would make him out to be. I think Paul Meskell and Austin Butler are very, very strong and comparable to him, in, I think, in different ways. But... He is really wonderful here, and I think this is a career-best performance, without a doubt. I I think The Whale as a whole film is problematic for a number of different reasons. For starters, the film never really overcomes its stage roots to then feel cinematic. When you're adapting a stage play for the screen, if you choose to keep the film rooted to the confined setting, the play was set in, obviously, for the logistical reasons of it being being performed in a theatre, you're always going to be facing an uphill battle of being able to narratively justify keeping to that inherently theatrical setting and not extant expanding the story beyond those roots and for me the whale doesn't succeed in really justifying this obviously due to charlie's physical condition he's not exactly going to be gallivanting through the fields or a, a city or town setting however so much unnatural theatrical sounding expository dialogue is given to explaining to other characters and by and large the audience as well the past lives of the characters and how that's now affecting them in the present as we're seeing them on screen and in order to assist the story's translation to the screen why not include more flashbacks because the film does have a couple but you know by and large we are in this you know apartment for basically the entire film except the porch for one or two sequences why not visually expand the prior experiences uh, of the characters in sequences outside the apartment and flashbacks rather than relating them in a dull manner through the dialogue? I think we've talked in the past about certain films, you know, characters saying how they're feeling rather than showing it on screen and the whale, you know, is a big offender in this in this department. The screenplay instead, you know, obst- rather than going beyond this setting, it really obstinately and stubbornly adheres to this setting that does less to communicate Charlie's perpetual isolation, which I think is what it intends to do. And instead, it does more to, I think, stifle the drama and kind of suck the life out of the story, which is a real shame. The geography and design of the apartment as well, it kind of also contributes to this space feeling like a stage setup. The sofa situated right at the front, kind of central part of the, of the flat, with the dinner table and the kitchen in the back left and right hand corners, respectively. And the camera placement, it kind of looks at the space head on from the front 
uh, which combined with the blocking of the characters in opposing corners as they verbally spar, it only really serves to make it look more like a stage. And outside of some interesting flourishes whereby they shoot Charlie's laptop in an interesting, in an interesting way where uh, it kind of draw you into his mind and his kind of insular existence, I don't think the direction does a lot to make the space look and feel cinematic. There are some other unfortunate issues as well with regards to the screenplay. I think a lot of the film's issues rely with the screenplay. There are some theatrical leanings in the scripts that the film relies quite heavily on symbolism and metaphors that feel inherently theatrical in nature. There's a, a central conceit of a Moby Dick essay that Charlie reads or has read to him when he feels as though he may be dying. And the thematic link between the story of Moby Dick and Charlie's own sadness, oh, it, it feels really schematic and really like a really simplistic anal analysation of literature and then a really tenuous and simplistic link to the character's own situation, which, you know, kind of reaches the point of, in, reach the point of inducing an eye roll for me. But they got the title from it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially. And like, that kind ah, of, that's, that's where the whale comes from. I get it. Yeah, I get it. well, yeah. Um, there's been some interesting, I've, I've read some reviews of some quite interesting points about uh, the whale that is the whale swallowing Jonah and how that is representative of Charlie. But even then, that feels like a very obvious link that I don't really think adds much depth to his character. And that's kind of central issue as well. It doesn't go far enough with his. It doesn't go very deep into his eating disorder or his or his torment or his personality outside of kind of just superficially explaining what happened to him. And again, I think that's a byproduct of just sitting in this in this confined setting, in this confined period of time, this sort of week, this week-long time period which the film details. There's also some really heavy, heavy-handed religious messaging. And it feels as though it skews the film's focus away from unpacking the nuances of Charlie's grief and his eating disorder. And kind of instead it beats the viewer over the head with these religious teachings that, in the end, only really amount to the feeling that another, the film's trying to absolve another character of their sort of wrongdoing, rather than, you know, focusing more in on Charlie's own struggle. As well as a really sour point that that character then makes about a past relationship that Charlie had. And that character, Thomas is his name, he's, um, he's a missionary from a religious organisation. It feels as though he only really exists to provide these religious teachings, which don't serve the narrative at all, really, in my opinion. And also to fulfil a point about the arc of of Sadie Sink's character, Charlie's daughter, which I then didn't buy because the way her character is written, she's so venomous in her behaviour that when Charlie is consistently in his dialogue going, oh, she's such an amazing person, I want to remind her of that. I just don't believe that at all because she's showing basically nothing to clue me into the fact that in the past or even now in the present that she might be anything other than a really than a spoiled brat who is just has such hatred for the world around her and wants to show and express that in any which way she can the film does make some attempts to explain why she behaves in the way she does i'm just not really sure it unpacks it to the depth i would have liked to make her really fully rounded. It kind of feels like it's getting to that in one sequence in particular. But in the end, I, I don't really feel like 
her character does much more on screen than continually punish Charlie, her father. And and again, that's another issue, I think, structurally with the film. It feels as though it's a really th- thankless exercise in just repeatedly punishing this character. So do you think, you know chastises him huang chao chastises him samantha morton chastises him it does feel as though you know brenda's brendan fraser's performance has such empathy for the character and it really feels as though a lot of the interaction he has doesn't really doesn't really contain that empathy either i think it's you know obviously his relationships due to his past actions are going to be very complex and they're not going to be they're not going to be nice 100% of the time, but it does really feel as though, I feel like on screen in the course of this film, this guy has suffered enough. Can we, <laughs> can we have some, some levity, please? And mm. understanding that he has not just done things wrong. He has, he does have positive aspects to his personality. One more thing I, w- I would like to say about The Whale, and this is perhaps my biggest, my biggest issue with it, really. Um, I think central to why the film in the end doesn't work for me is that there seems to be a great disconnect between the intentions the film seemingly has on paper with how it wants to portray Charlie and his experiences and how the film actually ends up portraying him. A scene very near the start, it shows him um, engaged in a sexual act and that there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, but the way the scene's shot, it feels as though the scene is immediately trying to repulse us by this character and clue us into, you know, you know, look how disgusting this person is. God, you know, you just want to be out of here. You just want to be revolted by him. Now, this in principle is fine because what if if what the film then does is is dedicate a lot of time to kind of un- undermining that view, then sort of showing, well, wait, you know, this is our, our initial prejudice against him, but then here's all the positive characteristics he has. And then by not really going far enough with showing his positive characteristics and also having the, you know, characters repeatedly punish him over and over, it doesn't feel like the film does enough to to examine that prejudice and and, and, and unpack that and show that he does have depth and complexity. And this is then exacerbated by the fact that there's the, the, the scenes of him binge eating are shot with these very kind of low angles and sort, sort of voyeuristic push-ins, c- accompanied by these dark, rumbling, grinding string sections in the score that, that read as horror film inflected to me, that kind of, again, perpetuate this feeling of disgust at him. Again, I, I don't feel like the film as a whole presents a compassionate view of or a complex view of, of a morbidly obese man that has obviously come to this place through some very complex psychological and emotional issues. It feels as though it's simplistic in the end and doesn't really, really, I think, deliver him, deliver the empathy. I feel like his character needs in order to get a fully rounded view of him and achieve the film's message of showing him as being a positive you know warm good-hearted person as i think it wants to the ending is also uh, the ending is ridiculous the ending is so the ending takes a really hard turn into surrealism and i i can see what it's trying to do but it's so absurdly melodramatic that it, it even i saw 
I went and met with my colleagues afterwards who saw it at a different time to me. And even though some of them didn't take some of the issues with the early, earlier portions of the film that I did, even some of them still said the ending ruined it for them. So sadly, I, th- I do think Brendan Fraser deserves all the plaudits in the world for his performance, as do the other cast members. I think in the end, the film is too flawed overall to really receive much love outside of that. It's, we're not talk- I didn't dislike it, say, as much as Blonde or Babylon, but I can't really say in the end I, I connected with it as I wanted to. I, w- I would grade this a C. Yeah, disappointing that, I guess, um, because it's a shame that such a, a great performance is, is in a film that maybe doesn't deliver what, what you want it to. Um, so, yeah, disappointing to hear that. But who knows, maybe other people will get something, you know, different out of it. OK, so moving on to our next film, Saint Omer. Yeah, so this is, um, I saw this very, re- I saw this a couple of hours ago. Wow, fresh fresh off (laughs) the press, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, breaking (laughs) news, fresh. He ran straight from the cinema, came here, put on Discord, and is about to talk. I mean, it doesn't get much more fresh than this. No, you're kind of taking all the beauty and the bloodshed approach that we did last week with this one. So, um, so yes, it looks as though it's pronounced Saint-Omer. It's actually pronounced uh, Saint-Omer. It's a, it's a French film. It actually relates to the place um, We're having in the same France. issue with Ennis Man, Ennis Main, Ennis Main. Yes, Ennis Main, Ennis Main. You know what? You need to brief me about how these things are pronounced before yes. <laughs> we go into yes. this podcast. So, I mean, it's spelt St. Omer. Yeah, I know. Most people, I, I made the same mistake. Most people will, I'm sure. It, um, it relates to the place. Um, it's a courtroom drama and it relates to the place where the, the criminal court is situated and where the, the jurors are taken from. Uh, Saint Omer follows a a novelist who attends the trial of a woman who, well, I say accused. She readily admits that she murdered her fifteen year old, her fifteen month old daughter by leaving her to drown at a beachside. And this is set out right at the start of the trial. And she readily admits it, but she pleads not guilty because she wants to undergo the trial proceedings in order to determine why she did it because she's not entirely sure herself and rama the novelist is there to she's writing a modern day adaptation of the ancient myth of medea now i'm not particularly familiar with that myth so i'm not going to try and necessarily go into that but she's trying to write a novel based off this court proceeding which she is attending in an early scene in the film rama she is lecturing at a a university about um, some of the mistreatment that women received during the war, like having heads shaved. She likens this also to the, the novel in the film Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is, a, which is an interesting bit of intertextuality because that work is all about kind of collective uh, trauma that is then sustained in a city and the people from a city and trying to move on from that and how that affects their lives in the present. It's a classic film of the new French New Wave. I would highly recommend that. Um, and it certainly informed my viewing of this because this is a really interesting courtroom drama. I think when you view it, it, I think it becomes even more interesting when you view it in the context of other courtroom dramas, because, I mean, typically courtroom dramas are either these very inspirational historical dramas where people try, you know, fighting against adversity, you know, against social injustice, or 
are tales of you know whodunits, you know th- thriller, you know criminal criminal investigations. You know the the pleasure of viewing it comes from trying to unpack that case and sort of keep you guessing to the end. Here, the I mean the central you know dilemma of the case is set out right from the start. There's no qualms about what has happened here. What is then really interesting is how the film then examines when we are confronted with evil so plainly and so bluntly, how do we then respond to that? What does that, ref- what does that cause us to reflect on? What does that say about ourselves? What does that do when it causes us to kind of look inwards? And Rama kind of is found in this turmoil because here we have, she's presented with a mother who, is, who, who has murdered her offspring. And it's implied, it's implied at one point that you know, she, is, she is due to become a mother and she also has a past very difficult relationship with her own mother. And it's fascinating because there are no real like big monologues or speechifying on on Rama's end in terms of how she responds to, to the trial. It's a very kind of internal journey that's gradually developed really beautifully, actually, in uh, the lead actress, uh, I think, K- uh, Kiyish Kagami's performance. Does she feel as though she's going to repeat this woman's actions? She, does she feel she's going to be like her? Does she feel she's going to repeat her mother's own neglect and harsh treatment of her with her own her own child and her own life as a woman and her own family. And the direction of the film, I think, really helps to put that point across because it's verite and naturalistic to the extent where it's, you know, the, the emotions are presented very, very, you know, unencumberedly, very non-judgmentally on screen they're just simply there's a very matter of fact quality to the to the film's visual sensibility and the shots aren't particularly well composed not sorry not well composed what i meant they're not particularly rigidly composed you know they're not we're not getting really stringent tapestries here what we are getting are these frames where the actors are very kind of central in the frame and they're delivering these very lengthy monologues as they're being asked you know details of their past involvement in the case, and yeah, just this very unfiltered, unbiased view of their of their past behavior and potential wrongdoing. The film's very non-judgmental in tone, and that what's great about that is it doesn't give us any easy answers about the social dilemmas that are present and the philosophical ideas that are presented here in this film. I thought it was very powerful and very. It just it just really fascinating the sort of the issues it was making me film about think about and the effects that then has on the central character. The courtroom scenes are very long. I reckon they take up about sixty to sixty five percent of the runtime. I would have, even though I do think the the central change and internal struggle that the novelist character has is really effectively portrayed on screen and and very well written. Uh, and has great nuance and layers to it. I do feel like it could have been even more powerful had a bit more screen time been dedicated to that, rather than you know the some of the courtroom scenes going on for as long as they do. But for the most part, I thought this was a very, very powerful, a very um, thematically dense and unique uh, courtroom drama. I would, I would recommend this one. Recommend this one very much. I would give this an A minus. I'm just going to go to all like I'm. I'm going to use like. That method to sneak into like really high high profile court cases. I'll be like, oh, I'm just using it to rewrite the story of Icarus, <laughs> or like, 
I'm just right. I'm I'm just rewriting all the Greek myths. Um, research, 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 research. <laughs> Do you think they'd let me just <laughs> be like, oh yeah, I need to be in this murder trial <laughs> for research? Perhaps that try it. See, see what see what happens. That sounds so dodgy. I'm here in this murder trial for research. <laughs> like... Oh yeah. I mean, if I see if I see you on the news, um, having been arrested that's, for that's sneaking why. into a trial, I'll I'll be like, oh no, that, that's why. <laughs> let's, let's I knew face nothing. It. I knew nothing. I'm glad. You know, that you're the first person they're going to question. Um, thanks for that one. Let's go on to the next review. And this one is called Three Minutes, A Lengthening. So this is, I caught this at a really special um, one-off screening. It was a, presented by um, a film historian who, um, oh, damn, his, his, his name escapes me, but he talk, talked very eloquently about uh, what he thought was really valuable about the film and certainly informed the contextual idea about the film that I had going in and, and certainly made me appreciate the film uh, a lot more. It's a, it's a Holocaust documentary, but it takes a slightly different, unique approach to that in that it's essentially three minutes has been discovered of a peaceful Jewish village, predominantly Jewish population in this village. Uh, I think in Poland, uh, the, before the war and you know colonization by the nazis and the, the final solution you know essentially ruined all their lives and destroyed the village and it just really captures a, this small small bit of footage has captured a moment in time where you know it, it was peaceful and celebratory and uh sort of immortalized the identities of these persons who even the majority of them ha haven't survived so it's a very moving historical document that I think it's wonderful that it exists. It's interesting when you consider the stylistic and formal approach that Three Minutes takes to documentary to, to documenting and commemorating the Holocaust. You know, when situating in the context of previous films on the subject, the film historian who introduced it, he talked about how Shoah by Cloud Landsman, which is you know a famous nine and a quarter hour Holocaust documentary from 1985, it's often seen as the definitive documentary on the subject. The Cloud Landsman, the director, he viewed the act of using direct archive and graphically presenting the horrors of the Holocaust as complete obscenity. He instead used footage of the camps in the present, uh, I mean, the then present, as a way of capturing the events in the here and now and using interviews to show the feelings around it in the present day rather than, you know, exploiting the viewing the footage of the atrocities from the past. And then you look at also Schindler's List, how that took a more sort of, a more, you know, visually upfront raw violent approach but also kind of hauntingly beautiful and artistic look at the extermination with you know the famous black and white cinematography interspersed with the, the girl in the red dress and the thematic significance that that holds and then from my own from my own cinematic viewing you also think about the the famous short documentary night and fog from i think the the 50s and the much more recent documentary night will fall both of which contain incredibly unflinching footage of the atrocities from the liberated concentration camps, easily the most uncompromising presentation I've seen on screen of the Holocaust. And really, really harrowing footage. Um, whereas it, it's it, when you think about the long history of Holocaust documentaries and films and then look at three minutes, it's remarkable how the director, Bianca Stiegler, Stiegler interesting surname, <laughs> pronunciation of it, um, has found a unique approach here. What the film's able to examine really brilliantly 
is how when we look at this footage ourselves, there is this very moving and haunting evocation of the feeling that viewing this footage of a community from a bygone era, era in this case is not the same as viewing any other fragment of archive from an old town. In looking at this, even though in the moment it's very beautiful and celebratory and everyone is you know, beaming smiles and this great sense of community, there's this imminent sense of danger and longing for what could have been what could have been seen had these people's lives not been so violently destroyed so soon after the footage was captured. So to frame the Holocaust within the context of focusing in on what was lost was like a really singularly powerful view of this part of history that I hadn't encountered in this kind of medi medium before. And I found very, very moving. It's a very short documentary. It's only It runs a very compact 66 minutes and it gets just the right amount of narrative mileage out of the footage and the interviews that are delivered in voiceover and delivering different perspectives on the events. It sustains the runtime really well, but it also doesn't overextend the topic's reach. It ends at just the right time. The use of uh, zooms, slowing and reversing the footage as well, as, as well as desaturating and freezing the footage, it gives a great precision and eye how expressive this footage is. I mean, it's very grainy. There's a really interesting point in the footage about how they say, had this not been, you know, randomly discovered when it was, you know, if it had been sat where it was sat a month later, it would have been completely expired and we wouldn't have been able to, to use it. Um, so considering it's quite worn in terms of its detail, the way it, what it says about the community and the town in which they inhabit is, is really gorgeous. And the film seems to have a real reverence for that. The film also has like a, a quite interesting thriller, almost thriller quality to it. It's like the the I don't want to spoil the kind of the what information they are then able to pull out of the footage, but the investigative section, you know, sections of the voiceovers and the interviews that you know the dogged determination of these people to try and extrapolate as much information about these people from this footage is, was really really interesting and and really compelling, and. Yeah, I thought this this was a really terrific documentary. It's, 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 its historical significance can't really be overstated. And I think it's really wonderful that it exists. And I feel like it's a really important uh, document and relates that topic in a unique, in a unique cinematic way that I found was a very, very edifying viewing experience. I thought this was terrific. I would give this an, an A. Um, I love like documentary films where they've uncovered something or they found something that was, I mean, that's amazing that if it had been set out any longer that it could have been lost. I mean, how tragic would that have been yeah. if all of that, all of that evidence of, of that, that those lives had, had been lost. It's, there's something so special about like old film and old moving footage of people's lives. It's, yeah, it sounds like a really special film. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Um, I almost feel like that it should be blasphemy going from this to plane, uh, <laughs> but we've got it That's... to do. Uh... <laughs> yes, I thought you can't tell me I don't do my job because I, I wouldn't have gone and seen this by choice. Um, but you know, I have to. I have to see everything. That's part of the. That's part of what we do here. And you know, I went into this with very, very low expectations. And honestly, the biggest compliment I can give to Plane is that 
I anticipated that the viewing experience would be actively aggravating, but instead it was it was fairly inoffensive and went over fine while it was while it was on. I have to say, it was serviceable and it only made me like outright cringe a few times. Oh, only a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think mean, I, I, it's pr- it does feel pretty damning that that sort of you know backhanded compliment that I could give it, but I do genuinely feel that way. Um. I do. It's fair to say that it thrives less on the commodity of howlingly bad one-liners than some other B-movie action flicks in this same vein do. It still doesn't entirely escape scenes that warrant quite large eye rolls. There's an early sequence where it's it's Jared Butler as the pilot of the plane and the the co-pilot talking, and it's so assembly line packaged and engineered to attempt a natural and believable delivery of all the baggy character exposition that the film thinks will make you invested in the cast and it actually is actually just super stale and just like right i can see what this is trying to do and it's the editing so rigid and sequentially going back and forth between the two i'm just like yeah you're not fooling anyone in how thinly veiled the exposition is here i mean actually just a quick note on the plot it's essentially gerald butler is an ex-military guy he's a has a you know a very loving relationship with his with his daughter and he's piloting a plane that uh, goes through some bad weather and you know ends up crashing in a island in I can't actually remember where the where the island is but um it's essentially a line where I think it's in Malaysia but um uh, the Malaysian government won't actually go there because it's so rife with gang violence that the guys are out on their own and, and Gerard Butler must protect them. But the interesting the interesting uh, snag in that is that on the flight was an extra, extradited uh, a convict who was being uh, uh, taken, uh, taken to stand trial for prison. Um, stand trial for a murder and be sent to prison. So he has like, they must inevitably buddy up and go against the, go against the forces who are trying to snuff them out. <laughs> there's a um there's also there's this, there's this shamelessly saccharine ploy in the film uh to pull at the heartstrings using the father-daughter dynamic that's it, it's not threaded through the runtime enough to even begin to have the kind of impact it thinks it has um and it's a real shame because uh whilst the film overall is still pretty bland and um visually and narratively it's pretty low on cringeworthy nonsense it's pretty brisk and efficient at 98 minutes there's an there's a ludicrously implausible development in the third act that made me go, oh come on, we'd actually <laughs> stayed rela- we'd actually stayed relatively raw and boots on the ground up until that point, and we really did just have to go full fast and furious in that final <laughs> in that final act. But I mean, you know, that's all come- for, for me. I I prefer these kind of films when they're just balls to the wall, insane. You know, I'm yeah, like, yeah. if you're gonna do it, do it. Right, you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I almost kind of wish it had picked one approach or the other. But yeah. interestingly, the hand, the handheld camera work is kind of fairly measured and subdued, and the editing kind of avoids the the taken two school of editing where there's so many quick cuts it it renders the fight scenes like incomprehensible. Sorry, and just back, back up a sec. There was a taken two. Yes, there's. I think there's a taken what? three actually. How many times is this child getting taken? Um, they clearly really hate the child. <laughs> Wait, is it is it seriously the same child gets gets kidnapped every film? I can't I can't remember. I I I cast 
taken two and three out of my memory a long look, time ago. I'm gonna look this at like Liam Neeson on the phone, just kind of like Jesus Christ, you've got her again. Yeah. How many I'll times can he deliver the <laughs> How many times can he deliver the I'm gonna find you speech? I'm gonna find I know where you live now. <laughs> like... Yes, as I did in the last film, I still know where you live. <laughs> I still yeah, I still I still know where you live. Sorry, I, yes. I, I what? Anyway, carry on. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's this there's this hand to hand fight scene that looks at, that looks like it's shot on an anamorphic lens. It kind of distorts the edges of the frame, and it's quite it's shot in this really raw and claustrophobic long take, and it kind of heightens the relative brutality of that altercation. And I almost wish that this directorial flair was more present in the rest of the film, as it's not really present elsewhere. The action does have some teeth. It's kind of fairly brutal in places, but it's not really frequent enough to keep the film all that engaging or all that entertaining even as a mindless action film for the full runtime but like i said it didn't really drag at all it's fairly efficient it went down fine it just you know in still in relative terms i wouldn't say it's outright good but you know i would give it a c it's perfectly average and you know if you're just looking for something to turn your brain off and watch you know an action movie of this type you could do far worse I mean, if if you wanted to bump it up to a, a B, you could add some snakes to that plane. <laughs> <laughs> and then And, and then, some Sam Jackson. And some Sam Jackson. And then you've got a classic, really. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on from plane. Although I kind of want to stay on it for just the insanity of all of that. Um mm. Let's go to I Want to Dance with Somebody. This is the Whitney Houston biopic. Yes. So, I mean, not really much to say plot-wise outside of, you know, a, chronicle, a chronicling of Whitney Houston's life, one of the greatest vocalists of any genre in the history of music. Uh, her kind of formative days singing in a gospel choir at church, you know, her relationship with her parents, her record deal, her kind of toxic relationship with fame and Bobby Brown and of her later drug addiction and yeah just the the highs and lows of her career and also a tribute to her talent i did go into this with a certain degree of trepidation because it's helmed by the same at least the same writer maybe the same production team although i'm not entirely sure but definitely the same writer as bohemian rhapsody which i thought was a soulless and painfully generic biopic that didn't do justice to freddie mercury or queen's legacy at all the trailer also didn't appear particularly didn't appear to like set this film apart from like the big budget studio held musical biopic that seems to comprise the majority of cinematic retelling retellings of singers' lives. You know, one of the things that was so refreshing about Rocket Man is how you know it shape shifted the form into this extravagant and ad, at times you know abstract musical odyssey that was very in keeping with Elton John's musical style and his musical persona. I love Rocket Man. It's, it's terrific, I think isn't it, it was probably my favourite film off that year. I can't remember what oh, else came yeah, out, but so. it probably I can't remember what else, it was twenty nineteen, it was wasn't it? But I, I think it was just the one that stood out to me. I just remember going to the cinema and it was like the first film in a long time that had like gripped me or like you know, just taken me away with it that much. Yeah. Uh, like just in the visuals and obviously the music's fantastic and yeah, I think I mean, it's interesting what you say about the Queen biopic because I, I kind of went to and fro with it because initially I thought it was fine. Like I didn't, I didn't love it when it first came out. That there were parts of it that I thought were very like staged and awkward and you know like by the numbers. 
Um, and also, like one of the greatest queer icon, uh, one of the greatest queer icons of all time, and we're really going to focus in on that one time that he was in a relationship with a woman. Um, yeah. So I was like, and and you know, that's that's fine, so long as you also would give some attention to the the queer relationships in his life, which I just think, thought were unfortunately lacking in that film. But mm. um, you know, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I didn't seem to have like, a, you know, a lot of people really didn't like it. And and but you know, I I was like, it's fine. The music's good. I thought Rami Malek was great. But there is this kind of trend now. I mean, it's almost like Avengers films. We're getting like a a biopic every year for like a new singer. I want to know when they all team <laughs> yeah. up. You know, when is David Bowie <laughs> going to turn up at the end and like recruit Whitney Houston and Elton John, and they're going to like I don't know save the world or something. I mean, to be fair, I would watch. I would oh, watch. I totally watched that. That'd be an amazing. <laughs> but um, yeah. they they do all seem to hit very similar beats, um, and I think even El- even Rocket Man does in a way. I think the one thing that sets it apart that is is that it has a bit more fun with it, and it it kind of acknowledges it that the fact that this is a bit of a fantasy as well, and there are you know mad things happening, whereas the others. You know, try and say this, this is this is the truth. This is all. You know, this is what happened. How does I want to dance with somebody deal with the kind of biopic formula? So it doesn't elude all of the pitfalls that played Bohemian Rhapsody for me, but for the most part, I think it sets itself as a cut above that previous film. One drawback that has unfortunately been overhauled is what I refer to as brisk transition syndrome. So for about 60% of the narrative, many life events and aspects of Whitney Houston's career are relegated to very individually short short amounts of screen time. And the film in its its earlier portions often feels like a whistle-stop tour without a tremendous amount of attention given to developing these various plot points further rather than giving a fairly superficial overview of her life and career. (laughs) The screenwriter clearly hasn't learned but to unpack and zoom in on a specific life or career event in greater depth leads to more compelling biopics and character portraits, unmasking their personas, unpicking the personalities, rather than relaying the successes in the broadest of cinematic terms. It does seem to move more towards this approach in the second half by giving Whitney's turmoil, her drug addiction, her rehab, procedures more narrative breathing room. But because we've... The slightly adverse trade-off with that is that because we've become accustomed to how swift the pacing has been beforehand when the pacing slows to what it kind of should have been like all along in the second half it feels as though the film stagnates a little that being said two things despite that criticism two things really saved this for me and actually made it pretty solid in my eyes one is Naomi Aki's performance she is great in this you know Whitney had did have a very particular kind of rat-tat-tat punchy swagger filled and also almost kind of like you know, confident, brash way of speaking. And Naomi Aki really, really gets that vocal quality about her and, and gets that that confidence, that almost arrogance, but also, you know, that incredible strength and headstrong feeling that Whitney Houston had. And, you know, it, it's it's such a great evocation of her personality. Her accent is also spot on. I actually, I've seen her in something else, so I knew she was English, but I almost had to, I had to sort of Google it again after having come out because... You know, her accent is so, and vocal evocation of Whitney is so well integrated that, you know, you know, you wouldn't doubt for a sec, doubt for a second that she isn't that character or not American. 
and also the strength and the the physicality you know how the the great weight in her vocal performances is a is very well conveyed with you know her you know the mannerisms of her mouth and her arm gestures while singing as well so her performance is really excellent also, what's something I was really pleasantly surprised about is that Barry Aykroyd is the cinematographer here. Now, for those who don't know who that is, he uh, is uh, Ken Loach's longtime collaborator and has worked on, you know, his Palm Door winning film, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, I think Riff Raff, Lady Bird, Lady Bird. choice. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he has done bigger budget uh, American thrillers, like with Paul Greengrass, like with Green Zone, with her... Uh, uh, Captain Phillips. I think he was also the cinematographer for The Hurt Locker as well, Captain Vri- Catherine Bigelow's Iraq War drama. So he's very well accustomed to this very intense, raw, in-the-moment social realism, it's almost kind of documentary-esque approach to uh, retelling real-life events. Um, so so he, he's a really interesting f- choice for you know, cinematographer for this biopic. And I think his camera work really works here. He doesn't overdo overdo it with the crash zooms or the, the lapses in focus or the handheld camera too much. It's a really nice balance because it still has the sort of the sheen and the 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 heft of a you know a big budget studio biopic that you know is uh, befitting for a performer and a vocal talent as grand as Whitney Houston. But it also makes so many of the sequences in this film feel really natural really tactile really human really in the moment and it just allowed me to you know i i felt like bohemian rhapsody was such a such a assembly line processed biopic that you know felt like it had been tuned and edited and you know polished to the nines whereas this felt you know more lightning in a bottle more in the moment and i really loved that about it Again, like I said, you know, with the way it approaches her career, I don't think it, you know, it has, you know, nearly the depth or insight of, you know, a biopic like Rocket Man, like maybe Straight Outta Compton, or uh, or even maybe like something like Ray. But I did really like this, and those two, also the 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 chemistry, the natural chemistry between a lot of the performances, um, that feels very fluid and at ease as well, and that made it really easy to buy into the character interaction and made it easier to get involved in that whereas so much of the dialogue in Bohemian Rhapsody felt hokey and and cheesy and just so stilted so it's not without its problems but I do think I Want to Dance with Somebody is very solid and I enjoyed it very much I would would give it a B Fantastic and also you know I mean any a biopic about Whitney Houston the tunes have got to be great right? Oh they are <laughs> I could I could listen to I could quite happily sit down for a, a couple of hours and just listen to that. That sounds like a good time to me. It was a very good time. Nice. <laughs> if okay, here's a question. If you could have a biopic about any artist, who who would you choose? You can only pick one. Oh, that's Oh, that's that's tough because I, I think I think a lot of them a lot of them have been a lot of them have been done i think has there been a biopic about robert johnson i'm not sure i think just just robert johnson was this really enigmatic um blues musician and singer songwriter who i think he died very young and 
yeah, just such an influential musician who so little seems to be known about him, but he's had such a wide influence on people like Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, you know, the British blues movement. Yeah, I, I would love to see what what could be done with a film on, on his life, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Mine would be Smash Mouth. <laughs> that took completely opposite ends of the musical spectrum. Brilliant. I was waiting to Absolutely see if the penny brilliant. would drop. <laughs> well, I mean, they influenced so much Smash Mouth. Um, oh, the, the the voice yeah. of a generation. Exactly, the voice of a generation. Just putting it out there. I mean, we've obviously got we've got a Bob Marley biopic um, in the works. Mm. Um, there's been like production photos from that. Um, the one that I'm a little bit worried about that I've heard about is the Amy Winehouse um, biopic. Yeah. Um, I I really hope that they don't do a dirty. I really hope yeah. that they, especially cons- yeah, especially considering the documentary is so great and so heartbreaking and so informative, but also sensitive. Uh, yeah, I just part of me goes when there is a great documentary about a singer's life. Do we really need the biopic? But if yeah. it brings more, if it brings more attention to her talent and also her her struggles and and how badly the media treated her, then then I suppose that's a good thing. I just hope I just hope they don't mess it up. It was also a bit of a, I mean, uh, Britney Spears in true Britney fashion. Um, there was a rumor that Millie Bobby Brown was up to play Ooh. Britney in a. I'm biopic. not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> well, neither does Britney because she basically responded with "I'm not dead yet." <laughs> I can't That's help but a... I can't help but respect that. <laughs> That's such a great response. Yeah, don't hang my dirty laundry out cinematically when yeah. I'm still here, you know. But yeah, I don't. I don't know who I'd want realistically. I think. I mean, obviously, we've had the Aretha Franklin one, which was uh, respect. That was really, really good. Um. Maybe a Billy Joel. Has it been a Billy Joel film? Oh yes, that's a that's a good shout. That would be very good. My namesake. Oh, is it really? You were named after Billy Joel. Yes. Fantastic. Pa- partially. B- Billy Joel, Billy Connolly, uh, because Billy Connolly, dad's favorite comedian. Billy Joel, mum's favorite musician, and but friends and family members have also been called Bill or Billy. So it it, it fitted. <laughs> well there's some i mean billy joel has got such a fantastic it's like elton john like they've got such great back catalogues i think that i would go even if it's just to like listen to the music i think it'd be a, a fun time okay what have we got coming up next week billy so we have puss in boots fantastic uh, which i am which i am a Quite excited for actually, considering the critical buzz it's had. I'm looking forward to that. We have the new M Night Shyamalan film, Knock at the Cabin, which I am a little bit worried for, but we I've, shall see. I've heard, how... I've heard some things, but it's got so, it's mm. got such a good cast. I'm like, is it yeah. is it just Shyamalan being Shyamalan? <laughs> we shall see. Uh, it might out. it might not it might not avoid that, but we shall see. And then got a really interesting. Uh, line up over the weekend we've got the awards contender women talking which i'm very excited to see we also have eo with the co-production uh, it's a po- in the polish language uh, about the uh the adventures of a, a donkey and also we have a really uh powerful looking british drama 
called a blue jean about uh, a woman in the northeast grappling with the, the reality of her sexuality uh, during the time that it was still illegal to be gay in the UK. Sounds like a great lineup. Um, so thank you for all your reviews once again, uh, Billy, and we will be back next week for more reviews. Bye. Bye.